Welcome to the Reticle Up Podcast, where I, Three Gun Kenzie, will be interviewing competitive shooters, hunters, fishermen, archers, entrepreneurs, and outdoorsmen. Come learn with me as I interview people from all walks of life, in different disciplines, all across the world, from novices to professionals of all ages. No matter what, everyone has something they can teach you. So come join me on the journey. Welcome back to the Reddick Club podcast, y'all. Um, so we've got the other side of Double Star on today. We've got Robert Cabrera. He's the director of the Blade Division at Double Star. Stabby on the QQ and Stabby show. And then we'll talk about his other nickname. That's, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the main one. The main one. Yeah. I'm excited to hear that story. So um, I got to know, too, just starting off, did you ever imagine or plan that you'd end up like right now where you are running the Blade Division at Double Star? Uh now, well, not really, but I knew that, uh, you know, because life, you know, the turns and twists and things that were, I knew that I wasn't going to be at the time that I made the decision to do what I was going to be doing, which was about 12 years ago, which started me on in the knife manufacturing, uh, you know, field. Yeah. But as far as like running this, uh, no, but I'll be honest with you, it's kind of a hat that I've worn before. Um, yeah, because I was, I was in project management and doing other things like that in my other field. So, you know, being in a, in a leadership position, uh, it's, it's not, it's kind of an old shoe. Yeah. Yeah. That's fair. Yeah. Fair. So we'll get into to double star a little bit later, but, um, yeah, for starters, like, tell me about your background. Did you grow up around like the knives and all of that stuff in your life? Yeah. So, I mean, uh, a lot of hunting, a lot of fishing. I was raised on my mom's side of the family. They were really big in the outdoors, camping, hunting, fishing, trapping. So knives and guns were a part of life. That's that was it was pretty much like that till I was 19. Uh, shoot and trap every weekend for the most part. That was a big thing for us during the summer was shooting trap and then hunting and fishing, you know, was from one season to the next. We were either turkey hunting during the summers growing up uh hunting hunting like woodchucks and then small game in the late winter and a big game during the fall late fall so i mean uh knives were just a way of life i mean it was you were either using them to work on the farm or you know you're field dressing or you know filleting fish or um and then uh, when i was 12 years old i got into martial arts and i started training pretty pretty heavily and then uh, really got into knives back in those days you know because i grew up on kung fu theater uh, you know, 12 o'clock on Saturday. So that was another, at, you know, another part of knives was Kung Fu theater and being involved with it on that end. So there was always this martial attraction to blades as well. So it, it's kind of a mixed bag. I don't, I'm not really one dimensional when it comes to that. I've got a lot of different interests when it comes to knives history. I'm really big into knife history. I'm a, a student of war. So, you know, it's a lot of different things. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Let's break all of those things down. I feel like, um, also, do you know anyone else, um, growing up in, in America today that spends all their time outdoors and knows how to hunt and trap and do all those things anymore? Is that gone? Uh, that's funny that you asked that question. It's, um, I mean, even, even in, in, you know, in my life, the, to, to find time to get out and hit the field, yeah. it's really, really, really rare. Uh, like right now, my son and I are getting our bows set up to go out and try to do a little bow hunting this fall. I'll be honest with you. If we can peel off twice, I think it's going to be a lot. Wow. 
I think we just live in a, such so much more of an active. I don't know. Maybe we just we're loading up our own schedules too much. Um, I, I wish that I knew more people who hunted and trapped and things like that. But it seems like everybody that I surround myself is almost as busy as I am. <laughs> so you know i've got a couple of buddies of mine that keep me up to speed on hey you know i'm i'm scouting this area out and you know wish you were here you know especially a lot of my friends from back home where i grew up in upstate new york uh you know they'll always send me messages hey man look at what i got on the trail cam and you know it, it just just teasing me you know being able to get out in the field but in, as far as knowing anybody man yeah i know nick nick hunts my uncle is still an avid hunter even though he uh you know, he's getting, you know, shoulder injuries. He can't pull the bow back anymore. So he's, you know, he's up in New York. So they gave him a permit to hunt crossbow. So he, he crossbow hunts up there. Still big time shooter. He shoots a lot. As far as like trapping, trapping's almost non-existent anymore. I don't even know anybody traps. So yeah, it's really rare. It's, it's, it's almost golly. It's really, I mean, even, even guys who fish, <laughs> You know, I mean, I mean, I fish, I've got cousins who fish, but still like the real, like growing up, everybody you knew did something, you know, they were either goose hunters, duck hunters, turkey hunters, bow hunters, you know, big game gun guys. There was, you always met somebody that you could talk about doing something in field. Yeah. Um, or here's another thing, Nick and I talk about this all the time is, is we talk about this concept that I was going to write a book um, and it was called things I learned in deer camp. And it's this idea of, of what deer camp was, you know, I don't know, 30 years ago and, and the kind of the, the, the rite of passage of deer camp. I mean, I learned how to sharpen a knife at deer camp, you know, with my grandfather, I learned how to feel, you know, uh, fillet fish and, and break down and break down game. And, and, and then I learned how I learned about the pecking order of believe this or not the alpha layout. I learned that as a child, you know, from being around all these men and you learned what the pecking order was in that, in that atmosphere. You know, you had the older guys who basically took the younger kids and taught them how to split wood and cord and build fires and cook and, you know, help break down game. And then there were the kind of the next, the next younger guys down, they were the ones who were hitting the field a lot. And I don't know, just this idea back then, it just seemed like you knew more people who were really getting involved with being outdoors, you know? Yeah, I feel like that's that's crazy and sc- it's a little bit scary to me because um, I grew up duck hunting and deer hunting and all of that. And I was going to say what I learned at, at <laughs> deer camp, how to stack cards into a fort. <laughs> oh, we did. <laughs> that was on a rainy day. I mean, I could I could I think I remember either that or playing solitaire on a rainy day. That was about it. Yeah, yeah. And then uh, what what clothing to wear while duck hunting? I didn't realize you're pretty much in the water. But yeah, it was fun. Oh, God, duck hunting. I, I've went twice in my life. And there's a reason for that. Because there's a, well, f- there's a reason why ducks are called foul. Because that's the weather. Yeah. When you're hunting them. Yeah. I mean, it, like we, we would hunt uh, in New York, it's really big to hunt riverways. Mm-hmm. And the <laughs> the one duck that would come down the pipe, you could hear him coming way down because everybody that was on the river was shooting at him. So by the time he got to you, he was really moving. So don't even waste your shells, man, because this guy is not stopping. And it was always miserable, cold and rainy. And oh, no. And I really never liked eating duck. So, yeah, I wasn't really I don't know if it was because of the way it was cooked or whatever. Yeah. But I wasn't into it. You know, I'd always hang out for the field for the field dressing. You know, I always love to help yeah. field dress and whatever. 
so I'd hang out and feel dress and we'd talk or whatever, you know. But uh, dipping and- for you though, was that the dipping in the hot wax at all, or plucking, or what they do? Back in those days, we were we were plucking, and okay. then we were kind of it was kind of a combination of plucking and then the um, doing really like quartering, like you'd get them plucked and kind of skinned at the same time. You'd clear them out really good, and then the guy that we hunted with, he liked to quarter them. Okay. He liked to split them right down the breast, and then he'd quarter them right under the wings. Um, and that was a real because he he liked the deep he loved to deep fry everything so everything was deep fried and then we'd do the geese the same way like I'd go hunting with we'd go hunting with this guy and he'd do geese exactly the same way so yeah yeah everything was fried yeah oh so we we did the hot wax thing I just thought that was the thing ever because the the fur or the feathers stay there forever but yeah (laughs) so gross yeah 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 I, I didn't that's why I helped you know because they were nice enough to let me hunt so I'd always be there and help as a matter of fact one time I got um I got in trouble I'd rather not say the story but let's just say that we were geese hunting and I didn't know that you couldn't shoot grounded birds and uh so I was bored so I left the blind and I'm like I'm out of here I'm bolting so I didn't know you couldn't shoot well back in those days too you could they had the plugs and the shotguns that you could pull them out Oh yeah. Yep. So you had to keep your plug in, right? So I'm leaving. I'm on my way out. So I'm breaking my shotgun down. I'm pulling the plug out, putting it in my pocket, close it, which is still illegal. Yep. And I'm and I'm putting my gun back together and I hear geese. And let's just say I jumped like I dro- I jumped like like a whole, I mean a bunch of them. I snuck up on them like they were whitetails. And let's just say I showed back at the blind with like five of them in three shots. And then the dudes were losing their minds because like you could go to jail. I didn't know, you know. So yeah. they were like, then all of a sudden everybody had to get their tags out to take the, to take the five geese that I shot with three shots. So anyways, that was the end of my goose hunting career. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That'll do it. You know, um, that actually brings up a good point though. The learning curve to get into hunting is massive. It's huge. Like you would have to go look up all the legal rules and get your permit and what classes you have to take. And I yeah. feel like that's an overwhelming part of today's society is trying to figure out how do I even do that public land? How do I know where it stops? Right. Yeah. Yeah. Hunter safety. I mean, I don't even know. I know they do it here in Kentucky and in New York. It is. Yeah. In New York, it's mandatory. You can't, you can't bow hunt and you can't gun hunt without a hunter safety course, period, full stop. Um, So that's one thing that my son and I were talking about. That may be the very thing that may keep him out of the tree stand this year is because he hasn't, didn't, hasn't had a chance to do a hunter safety course this year. And I don't think they do them this late, but so, um, I don't even know what state, like, like Tennessee. Mm-hmm. I don't think they do it. I don't know about Tennessee. I got it in Florida yeah. and then Alabama yeah. asked for your license from Florida. Like that you had the class. Yeah. It, and yeah. Like that, then again, like we said, as soon as you move over different boundaries, <laughs> what are the rules? <laughs> yeah. I moved over. I lived when I, I lived in Tennessee for eight, 15, 18 years combined the two okay. times. And I don't ever remember anybody mentioning anything about a hunter safety course ever. Yeah. Um, you know what, you know, the and that's a whole nother conversation you can get into people get so weird about that you know but i think it's i think it's a good thing i mean you know they they they, you know like they uh you know they they taught you how to follow blood trail uh they taught you ground birds yeah 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 well yeah i must have forgot all about that part because i completely failed that mess uh like i said that was the end of my goose hunting escapades but uh, I pretty much stuck the whitetails and turkeys after that. Yeah, yeah, that's awesome. I mean, in your grocery shopping, it doesn't sound like you went out and bought, you know, beef very often. You guys literally supplied year-round food. Yeah, we, uh, I mean, we still, 
you know, we still, uh, we still bought, but there was, you know, there always seemed to be venison in the freezer always, you know, um, and we'd usually go through it between four to five months. It was gone. Oh, wow. That's fast. Yeah. Yeah. We'd go through, I mean, especially me, especially when I got into my teens, when I was trying to crush as much protein as possible, I was, yeah, I'm serious. I was on, I mean, I'd come through the house and I'd be unthawing meat and into the, yeah. Yeah. If there was any, especially backstrap or anything like that, it was history. Yeah. Was, yeah. yeah. I hated that when my little brother would get something before I would, but yeah. <laughs> I'm like, yeah. That was mine. <laughs> yeah. Backstrap and, um, backstrap and I'd cut steaks out of neck roast usually. Oh, that was one of my favorite. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So getting into some of the, the bow hunting stuff too, um, and bow fishing, those are really activities that I see like diehards are really into. Right. And people, yeah. like, you know, people into it, but it's also kind of not as popular, right? Well, it's, it's funny because, um, and the, so I, I boat hunted pretty exclusively till 2001. Um, and I hunted throughout New York state. Then I, you know, moved to Florida hunted a little bit down there. As a matter of fact, I hunted in the, uh, um, Tampa region back in the nineties and then, uh, moved to Tennessee. And then I hunted, bow hunted Tennessee for a while. I had a really good, uh, stomping ground. I was on a piece of property on, on this mountain called Mont Eagle. And, uh, I hunted there and did really well. And then in 2001, right after nine 11, I got a gig working for the army Corps of engineers and then moved down to the Caribbean, which pretty much put the kibosh on hunting. Yep. And then I was down there for four years running an office. Uh, but after that, up at, all up until that point in time, I, toward the very end of my, at that, at that particular stint, I started getting into traditional shooting. Yeah. Um, and I'll tell you right now that bow fishing is a huge way to get into traditional shooting. In other words, instinctive shooting. Yeah. Uh, bow fishing is probably the best way to keep that knife sharp. It's, yeah. it's absolutely fantastic. Um, and then the biggest thing is too, is, is, is there's a lot of things you can do with, uh, a lot of the rough fish. Um, you know, if you have compost piles and things like that, if you're not the type of person, you want to be eating carp and gar and all that. Now, although gar actually, if you can skin it is actually pretty good. Um, but yeah, uh, bow fishing is great for instinctive shooting. And I started getting into that, got really big in instinctive shooting toward the very end. And then, uh, after I sold my stuff, when I went to the Caribbean, then I moved back home for a little while and I lived back in New York for like two years, two or three years. As I was up there, I got right back into bow hunting again up there. And, uh, to be quite honest with you, I've been on an archery hiatus for probably a, a couple of years. My son and I tried to get back into, it. we bought our stuff but somebody got into the garage at night using a, um, in other words, they stole our stuff two or three years ago. So yeah, we're just getting kitted back up again now. Yeah. My uncle was cool enough because he hurt his shoulder. He gave me his, uh, he gave me his Matthew switchback. So I'll be shooting that. And to me, I'm just happy to get back to the range and shooting again. Right. It's actually really fun. (laughs) Like really, really fun. It's something you don't think about an hour goes by and you're having to use every single piece and part of your brain, your body that you're actually not thinking about anything else. You can't. Yeah. It's a, yeah. You got to keep everything out. Yeah. You got to keep everything out there at that point in time. When you, when you draw that thing back and you anchor, there's no work, there's no bills. There's no, the cars broke down. There's none of that. All there is, is that knock point that kisser button that ring that line across your nose that's it and just push it out that's that's all there is 
you know, and, and it's meditative. It's, it's, uh, it's, it, to me, it's, I, I, it's very similar to martial arts for me. It's very meditative and it falls right into that same category. Yeah. I, I think it's like my mental health release really. It's like an hour and turn on music, if that, and just hang out. My question on, um, I know nothing about bow fishing. I've seen it. Is bow hunting and bow fishing different with like, there's no release in fishing. Is that right? Yeah. I never shot. I know some guys who shoot releases. Okay. Um, for, for bow fishing. I never preferred to, I always stopped. I always shot purely instinctive for, for that, just because you don't have an awful lot of time. Um, usually you only get a glance and you need to take advantage of that immediately. Um, that's why it works so good for instinctive shooting is I don't know if, uh, there's several methods for instinctive shooting. One of the methods that I used to use was called what they call the punch method, which is basically as you draw out, you push, you punch towards the target. And that's the method that I used to use for bow fishing, which actually kind of translated over to when I started working on instinctive shooting. Cool. Okay. All right. And then like, I'm interested actually know how you got set up uh, for bows. I know I've gone through that process, but like you're able to fit your dad's bow and that's not always the case, right? My uncle, my uncle and I happen to be exactly the same draw length within a little over a 16th of an inch. Wow. Yeah. So, so explain that for new people listening that don't really know or understand that why you need to have a bow that fits you. Yeah. So they span me. So they, when they spanned me, um, let's say it may measure from point to point and they do some math and they get it to where they split you. Uh, my uncle and I are literally the same and it's so important to be fit properly. Uh, for me, it's especially with tech, the high tech stuff, you really want to be fit and you want to be lined up real well. Uh, some of the older bows, the more archaic stuff, there's a little bit more room for error in yeah. there. But with these bows now that they're moving so hot, I mean, you're th- 350 or 300 feet per second plus anymore. So you really want to make sure you're locked down and make sure you're fit correctly. Because um, if not, the, you're just not going to be as efficient. Your arrow flight's not going to be as good. Um, you're not going to be able to reach out in the way you really should be able to. Yeah, yeah. So, um, for people like wanting to learn what resources do they go to? What websites or like, how would they learn how to bow fish? Oh my God. YouTube's full of guys now. I mean, literally, I mean, it it is inundated and I mean, you could go to actually, you go to like my local archery shop, the place that I just went to, I found, I found a place that I'm real comfortable with now and it's great. I walk in there and, and, uh, you know, you get, you know, typical two or three guys that are locals, you're hearing the what and how what's going on and. Yeah. Uh, hey, did you see so-and-so on YouTube? YouTube has turned into this amazing thing when it comes to just resource-wise. Because, uh, I mean, like a lot of guys shoot compounds for bow fishing. A lot of, I, I was always a big fan of a recurve. I shot recurve for bow fishing, didn't shoot a compound. Um, so cool. Yeah, yeah, I like simple. When for bow fishing particularly, I like simple, real simple. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so yeah. I learned on a recurve from professionals that – like have one world shoots, but then now <laughs> I went to Ops Archery Supply. It's actually in Kentucky, so it's okay. not far from you guys. But I got fitted up there, <laughs> and, and he was like, "Try the recurve over the target into the concrete." <laughs> Recurves have such a funny energy to them, uh, yep. and you know, there's no let off. Nope. There's none of that. Uh, so fast, you cannot hold it. <laughs> yeah, and, and if I mean, if you're drawing back a seventy pound recurve, that's seventy pounds of real weight. And if you're not used to it, if you don't have the proper muscles lined out, especially if your form is bad, you're going to feel it immediately. You maybe get one or two shots and you're going to be really feeling it. <laughs> I was so embarrassed. I was like, I'll pay for that arrow. Yeah. And it ain't cheap either. I think that's the most expensive part about archery, to be honest with you. People think bullets are expensive. Yeah. Crap, dude. 
carbon arrows. You fit a carbon arrow out. You put a nice set of shielded cut veins on it. And you got your whatever up there in the front, whatever, whether you're shooting automatics or fixed blade, whatever. Bro, you got some grip in yeah. an arrow. Yeah. I mean, it makes me cry the thought of losing arrows, man. I know. I know. I, I shoot at my house, which the basement is all concrete. So I'm shooting at concrete. But I know if I had it skid on the ground before and hit the target, I'm like, I'm going to hit concrete soon. <laughs> Yeah, and then once you hit, well, I mean, you hit concrete, it pretty much smokes them things, man. Yeah, they're you're done. done. That's throwing the trash. Yeah, I just throw it away, and then you're like, there, there goes ten bucks. Yeah, that blows. Oh man. Okay, I had another question too that came to mind. Um, I actually don't know. Do you shoot broadheads with fishing? That sounds stupid, right? Like, what? Yeah, it's a tie. I've always been a real, uh, real fan of the muzzy trocar style tip for okay. bow fishing. Yeah, I like those. Uh, but any of the real wire tipped ones are really good you know bow fishing i think blows such a hole through them i'll be quite honest with you if you're a bleeding heart bow fishing is going to break your heart <laughs> i mean because it absolutely smokes them yeah yeah, yeah. Huh. i mean if you're not used to guts and yeah it's going to be a mess <laughs> i'm serious it 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 blows a hole through these i feel sorry for them a lot of times yeah. Oh, I can see that. I can see that. I haven't done it. I want to do it. Every time I look up, by the way, bow fishing on Instagram, you know what I get, right? Can you ask? No, tell me. Just a bunch of bikini and tits out and like. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. There's a lot of that now. That's become a real popular thing. I mean, anything to get the likes pretty much, <laughs> you know, but there are a couple serious guys. I got a buddy of mine down in uh, down Chattanooga. His name is Josh. Um, he's hardcore. He bow fishes at night down there on the, on the chat on the uh, Tennessee river. What? and uh yeah he's 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 got the boat with the Probably deck built <laughs> yeah he he uh i could definitely get you tied up with him because he is oh, he's all over that mess oh yeah i would love he that. Invites, he's shooting oh i mean he's shooting buffalo carp he's shooting oh my god he's shooting regular yellow carp i mean they're shooting gar gator gar cool. they're just they're all over it man and those guys are about it uh he's the one who got me turned on to actually eating gar um, mm -hmm. even with me being Jew Jewish, it's, it's legit. You, we yeah. can eat it. So he had me made these nuggets out of them. They're actually pretty good. So you can eat some of the fish that you pull out of there. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. My mom's from Louisiana. Pretty much. You can fry anything. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Don't really learn the recipes. Yep. So yep. one last question on that too. Um, you said boat. So I immediately thought, do you have to have a boat for boat? No. Okay. No, some of the most fun is waiting. So waiting is a blast if you get the right areas where it's nice and shallow you get around knee deep um watching those big yellow carp swirl and boil out in front of you and you're stalking them you're literally line of sight stalking them i mean yeah. you can sneak up on them i mean it, it's a lot of fun it is especially if you start getting into really big yellow carp where we're talking like 25 to 30 pounds plus i mean these things are just in the water they look even bigger but sneaking up on them you get a nice hit yeah it's it's a lot of fun Neat, neat. And there's a specific season or is that year round? Uh, most of the case is year round because uh, they're rough fish. They're usually invasive species for the most part. So you could like, I, I got a buddy of mine down in Florida that he, uh, he bow fishes for snakehead a lot. Yeah. It's this invasive species down in Florida. It's called snakehead. It's an Asian fish. Um, and they get pretty, I mean, they get pretty good size and they've got a lot of teeth and that's his big thing. He, uh, he fish, he bow fishes for snakehead. That's really cool. So, okay, you're, you pull back, you let go, broadhead hits the fish. Are you attached somewhere? You like, catch yeah. Line? Okay. okay. Yeah. I don't use reels. A lot of guys like to use reels, like the big giant Zipcos and all that. I've had bad experience with those in the past, um, where you forget to push button. 
<laughs> and then bang, there goes a $15 fiberglass arrow, just hit the bottom. So that's why I like simple. I'll, I just get the old fashioned like can method where you got to wrap it yeah. around. Just keep it simple. Keep it Alexa. simple. That's a pro tip y'all. Like, <laughs> I'm telling you when you lose four or five of those arrows, them jokers are not cheap. You learn real quick. That simple is, I mean, I, don't get me wrong. I think it's cute. You know, you're fighting a fish on the fishing pole, but you know, that $15 arrow, man, that just takes, takes the wind right out of your sail, especially when it's like your last one and you forget to push the button or you, you know, you're just, you're in a stalk, you're trying to get up on them. You forget the push button, bang, you fire, there goes your arrow and you're done for the day. So oh. ask me how I know. I was going to say, how has that happened? Yeah. So yeah, that's funny. Cause I'm talking about this and I'm going to get my son involved because it's, it's, it's a, it's just, a, especially stalking them. It's a blast. Yeah. Yeah. A I mean, that's any hunt. I think it's more fun than just sitting around. Yeah. Still hunting is, is, you know, but the funny thing is, is like, that's kind of the way I hunted growing up was still hunting, but we had a lot of property to hunt. Yeah. So you could take a rainy day like today. You know, we, I grew up around a lot of apple orchards and stuff like that. So a rainy day like today was great. Cause even, you know, two o'clock, three o'clock, you could break out and hit the orchards, you know, and, and spend way before dusk out walking. I, I, I harvested several deer just two or three o'clock in the afternoon, just, you know, still hunting around yeah. apple orchards. You know, we just sneaking up, looking, looking aisle down aisle. Heck yeah. You don't see yeah deer move that often in that time frame. No, but now it's, you don't, I don't know. It just seems like unless you got a decent size lease yeah. um, or uh, you're in an area that's even though it's public, it's not heavily trafficked. It's really hard to get away with still hunting anymore. You just yeah. can't cover as much ground as you should be able to on a, on a really good still hunt. Yeah. You probably run into more people. Or yeah, that's yep. exactly what happens. You run into more people. America needs to thin down. I think Thanos had an idea. Good idea. Yeah, don't even get me started on that. <laughs> okay. Don't even get me started on that because I'm, I, yeah, too many people. Okay, okay. Um, moving on. So, and then wrapping up the hunting aspect, like, again, it goes back to like the hardest part, I think, is starting it or getting into it, or like, how can we as hunters do better to pass that on? I don't think, well, I come from a mindset where, the, the best, the best activities that you can do or the best teaching that you can do start at home. Um, you know, I look at, you look at from a context of, of delivering a message of any type. If I can't express to the people that I love the most about something, how am I going to be able to tell something else about to, to somebody else about it? I think, um, you being able to pass that on to family, to blood, to kin. Um, I think it's probably the most important thing, whether it's your son, your daughter, your niece, your nephew, uh, grandson, granddaughter. Uh, I think that's probably the first step is we, we look so often to try to go out to teach people things where if we can't even teach our own family members of, of any type, second or third uh, range out, however you want to put it, you're really, that's probably the best, the best way to do it is get, get the people that you love the most, let them see how much you enjoy it and get them involved. Like I've got family members now down in Florida who've never hunted before. And they're, you know, they're like, Rob, you know, how do we get involved doing this? You know, and, and um, it's just funny because as me getting older, when I was younger, a lot of the family members really weren't into it. Yeah. You know, I was one of the only ones. And now that I'm kind of getting older and I'm getting to a point where it kind of feels like I'm on the backside of doing all that. Now they're coming out of the woodwork and like, hey, how do you do this? How do you do that? I, I, I want to learn how to do this. How do you do that? So I'm kind of having to, you know, I'm. I'm trying to edge back into getting more into hunting and shooting yeah. and doing all those things again. You know, my son is, he's wanting to get into it a little bit. 
you know, and, and I got, again, I got brothers-in-law and people like that that want to start learning how to do it. I'm like, all right, well, let's, let's see if we can do something. But it's weird though, because the time element, it's not the same. Again, if you, like in my case, I grew up in close proximity to the same land that I hunted. So I like literally, you could walk out the back door and you were hunting, boom, you're there. Now it's not the same. It's, it's this, now you've got to, okay, well, we've got to find a place to hunt. We've got to make arrangements and then you got to, so it's not as, it just, it's not as, um, it's expensive. It's it way is. more expensive than it used to be. Well, look at bows. Bow archery was one of the most least expensive things you could do at one time. I can remember a time when you could get geared up for right at around 300 bucks. Yeah. You could get geared up, ready to go license in hand and go start bow hunting. Now, paid 1100 for my bow yeah yeah and and well i tell you a funny story is is i was gonna break down and so i said let me go traditional okay i'm gonna go traditional so i I called my uncle up i said i'm going traditional like the if you were to say rob what is the what is your excalibur of bows right well my excalibur of bows is a black widow black widow recurve that's for me that's the whole holy grail (laughs) uh is the black widow pretty okay. much and i went to go get one and it was like 1500 bucks mm-hmm. just for the bow and i'm like whoa what the heck now here's the deal though i mean you could go to if you if you're smart and you know what to buy i mean the very first set of bows that my son and i bought i bought we bought matching uh matching loaded there in other words they already had sites they already had everything set up we bought them for uh 200 i think they were 299 for a piece okay. they were set up so all we had to buy was releases and arrows Nothing. that's it so for both of us i kitted both of us up for like 750 bucks that's not fair <laughs> so yeah and it was a good bow i mean it was shooting about 285 feet per second um, and it was brand new and it, and it shot pretty well for, for what it was. I, I was perfectly comfortable shooting with it. Um, even though, you know, cause I mean, I, I was broke in on, you know, the bear whitetail, the Kodiak. Um, so for me shooting below 300 feet per second, is not a problem. I can definitely compensate for that. But if you like, if you're just, you know, you want to do go catapult theory, where you're just going to fill the catapult with money and just start throwing it, bro, you could. My God, it's crazy. Like I looked at my bow, the one my uncle gave me, what it would cost for me to outfit that now. Yeah. And I was just like, no. What'd you come up with? What number? Uh, it was close to 1500 bucks Yeah. to yeah. do it, to do it the way I wanted to. Mm. Um, but I told, I was like 1500 bucks for a black widow. I'm like, okay, I'm only, that's like the guy who shoots to weather me. Really? It's the, it's that guy is, I mean, Oh, I shoot a Weatherby. Okay. Well I'm shooting a, a $400 Ruger, yeah. you know, and I'm going to kill that deer just as dead Dang. as you. <laughs> eh. So I don't know. It's, 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 you know, if you, if you look hard enough, you can find places where you can get a really good deal on archery stuff. So guys, when you go out there and you start looking, don't get, don't fret and listen, don't be afraid to go find a deal on a bow somewhere like Cabela's or someplace like that and take it to your local archery shop and have them help you get fitted. Okay. Yeah. Because not everybody don't, I mean, cause if you look at it as money, then you'll never get a chance to get out field. Yeah. So don't do that. I mean, don't, don't say to yourself, well, I've got to spend $1,500 to get out, to get into the field and start hunting. No, you can do it for less than that. I mean, 
There's no reason. What, I mean, for, for worst case scenario, go to a pawn shop with somebody who knows what they're doing. I'm serious. If you yeah, want, the, yeah. For me, the most important thing isn't that you're shooting a high dollar bow. It's that you're getting in field. Yeah. Or estate sales. I found really good stuff on estate yes. sales. Yes. Yes. So don't, yeah. don't let the price tag scare you guys off. The most important thing is get out there and start hunting. Um, you know, find, get a local shop. You know, a lot of times, if, even if you tell your local shop, you know, a lot of lo your local shops let you do layaways. Um, and a lot of those guys, if they know what they're doing and they know you're trying to get out there, they'll do everything they can to help you. Oh yeah. They, we all want to duplicate the numbers. Yes. That we do. I think that's huge. Yeah. And I mean, at the end of the day to, if we go back to like, for me, for archery, it's not just hunting. I might go compete. Now it's my mental health. It's my practice every day. This arm's really strong now, which is pretty cool. Yeah. <laughs> but there's more to it than just, you're not going to go shoot it once a year. Like you should be putting in work daily leading up yeah. to hunting. So there's yeah. that too. And the worst comes to worst. I mean, like I've, I've contemplated getting back into indoor. I shot indoor for a little while. I've thought about getting back into shooting indoor, shooting dots, Vegas yeah. style. Um, yeah. Just because I used to enjoy it. I mean, I may start doing it again, get inside and do a little bit of shooting do it ops archery yeah. has that league too i wish that we had one here in, near in tennessee but that's the other thing is facebook groups i found are really helpful with selling stuff and getting you to go to matches so i just need to go watch one and there's a lot of great organizations now too uh national field archery association uh national indoor um if you get in there and check them out there's a lot of lot of archery associations that will help especially if they got a lot of youth programs Oh, yeah. uh, for getting kids involved in like I've noticed here in Kentucky, there's quite a few yeah. archery. Um, they got a lot of archery tournaments that they have here specifically for like high school kids. Yeah. They do a lot of that. Um, but yeah, for me, that's the biggest thing. Don't let the, don't let the price tag, you know, uh, we, we talked about this one time when we were having a conversation with Nick about three gun, you know, three yeah. gun, three gun is, I like it. It's a great sport. Um, but for the whole life. yeah yeah but for the blue collar guy yeah. it's very difficult to even consider getting into it okay. um i mean i couldn't do it like my son um well they, they caught a lot of flack from it but the uh so the the pistol pistol caliber carbine huh? yep. okay um i found that extremely intriguing because at the time nine was very affordable Yes. Um, and I was going to get my son into shooting and I said, okay, well I could probably get him a nine mil carbine built for six to seven, six to eight at the time, uh, get him lined out with a halfway decent pistol, yeah. nine mil pistol. And he's good. Yeah. He's good. At that time we were shooting nine mil, like they were Cheerios, <laughs> you know? So I said, okay, this is reasonable. I can do this. And then again, you get a lot of guys that hammer down on pistol caliber carbine, but here's the deal though. Do you, do you still, do you still work out perishable skill? Yes, you do. Do you still work out getting on target? Yes, you do. Do you still get out of the house in field and shoot? Yes, you do. So. Yeah. You know, you get people outside, get them outside, like go yeah. outside people. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, you know, like I said, the, the, again, I, I wish three gun yeah, I would, know. could go mainstream like that, but I just. I've, I've looked at it and, and I, I like the fact that people are out there, you, you know, getting rid of pair, you know, they're working on perishable skills, mm -hmm. but to look at it and say, wow, man, I wish so-and-so who I know loves to shoot, but I know they're not going to be able to afford to do this. And then I'll turn them on. Now there's, um, 
there's another what's the two gun the two gun one uh, well, USPSA did two gun. There's cool okay, one. that must be the one I'm thinking. USPSA, I hear you and Nick talk about it. Yes, so they did two gun nationals this year. I think they're going to bring it back next year. And then the newer company, Cobalt Kinetics, they're doing two matches a year in Utah. I think I've probably got that wrong. And so there's another one in December. So you just have to fly out there, but those are some really cool matches. They're not sanctioned by a governing body, but you know, outlaw two gun, have fun. <laughs> yeah, just go shoot. Just work on work on those reps, man. You know, clear, clear and leather and, and, and send in, you know, send an ordinance down range, man. That's, I mean, that's it. Yep. I mean, that should be the, I mean, I, the way I understood it, that was the whole point. Yeah. And USPSA made a rule change where you can actually draw from concealment now, like with appendix and everything. And IDPA still does not allow you to. So the defensive pistol organization is not going to let you practice defensive pistol. The USPSA. Okay. So they don't, they don't let you practice clearing the garment, which is, which is an, one of the most important things about self-defense. Correct. IDPA will let you have the vest. And so you have to get the gun out, but the, you're pretty much going to have a belt, you know, through your belt loops and an outer outside the waistband holster. USPSA though, you can have your appendix carry, you know, under your clothes and draw. And that's, what's really cool. And that's what I think grew the sport a lot. You can have your flashlights on it. And I know my people, they carry Glock with a flashlight attached and that's their holster set up too with appendix. So that's where they can practice. Yeah. And, and it's like, for me as a teacher, as an instructor, um, like we teach clearing the garment with knife stuff, um, all that we go through all that jazz and to see somebody like, again, if you're, if you're shooting like that and you're call yourself a gun person and you're putting reps in like that all the time, I'm like, okay, that's valid Yeah, because you're working on a skill set that could very much save your life period. Yep. That's awesome. Yeah. Well, we beat it a little bit at the, the horse to death. I said that wrong for the bow hunting stuff, but I think that's really cool. Um, you know, I both love the out- outdoors. The thing I wanted to get into um, is talking about martial arts too. I know pretty much across the board, a lot of people, you know, that have been abused or have been, you know, attacked and all of that. Why is it so important to take some sort of defensive classes and learn how to defend yourself without firearms? Wow. So the rabbit hole for me is this, uh, this whole idea of self-awareness um, and understanding that the world is not, we're not living in a world as we want it, yeah. right? We're living in a world as it is. And we have to take it as it is. Mm-hmm. And the, the bottom line is because of my background, the idea of the criminal element, you know, I'm not the guy that came out of the military. I'm not the guy who was in law enforcement. Actually, for a good length of time, I was doing stuff I wasn't supposed to be doing. And when I became an adult and started having kids and, and a home and a family, and, and I wanted to start giving back, it's this mindset and this understanding that, hey, while you're home, when you, okay, so all of us, nine to five, we get home. A lot of times, all we want to do is just, unload we don't want to get involved really we want to put our feet up our feet hurt from doing whatever all day or we've been behind a computer all day you know we just want to whatever some of us don't i mean or some of us have young children or have had young children they know it's like that to come home yeah and have to do that who who's got time for that (laughs) but here's the problem with that is is the criminal element in this day and age they're actually more equipped more prepared and they're in better shape than they ever were 20 years ago. And the reason why I know that is, is fortunately enough, I still spend a lot of time talking to law enforcement friends of mine, either in Chattanooga, North Georgia, Atlanta, wherever, Knoxville, Nashville, name it. I'm talking to friends in Memphis, 
And I'm talking and they're telling me the same thing over and over again. The thuggery that's out there now, these guys are in great shape. A lot of them. They're, they're bigger, stronger, faster meter. And while you're home trying to deal with life, they're getting their swole on and they're rolling with their buddies and they're, you know, they're working. Yeah. Yeah. They're work. They're working out. They're getting strong. You know, they're rolling, they're doing this. And with YouTube, I'm not going to knock on YouTube, but when YouTube being there, the availability to knowledge is endless. So they can learn about whatever they want. Yep. So ask any law enforcement officer that's seasoned and they'll tell you the same thing that the level of criminality has definitely gone up. Um, and the bottom line is, is law enforcement, they're fewer, they're getting treated worse. And that means that there's less people out there to stand on the wall. And yes, buying a gun is great, but your ability to make war on the person who comes through the threshold of your door, that's a game changer. Because one thing that that gun can't give you is intent. Mm -hmm. It will not and cannot give you intent. That is you rehearsing the possibilities and the probabilities of things that could happen to you and your family in your head and working out and being okay with that yeah. in the long run. And all martial arts does is, is it constantly, if you're training with the right people, it's putting you under that physical stress. Cause if you've got the right group of guys that you're working out with, you're sparring with them. You're you're to, for lack of a better word, you're getting your ass kicked by your friends on a regular basis. Yeah. So that is stressing you in a good way. That's preparing you in a good way for that. To me, I think that's probably the more valuable part about martial arts. It isn't necessarily, hey, I'm going to go to this school and then they're going to give me a black belt and everything's going to be great. No, it's not that. It's going to a school, whether it's an MMA gym, whether it's a good FMA school, whether it's a good uh, Krav school, whatever. And you go there and you get your butt handed to you on a regular basis. Because that's the most important thing, because you're training with guys and tribe that should love you and care about you in the sense that they want to make sure you're getting the right training and they give a crap about Cabrera. You know, we're doing boxing drills. You keep dropping your hands and I keep getting hit in the face. Why am I getting hit in the face? Well, because my bro isn't going to let me keep my hands down, you know, and he's going to keep hitting me in the face until I get my hands up. Well, he cares. That's an odd way to say it, but he cares. Why? Because God forbid, if I ever have to do anything. I better be able to, to dish it out. Yeah, you, it's muscle memory at that point. And the other thing that I see a lot too is people playing in circles um, where they are the person dealing out all of those, whatever you want to call it. So you're not growing if you're not having the people that can advance you, that can humble you and that can, mm-hmm. you know, that that's important too is what circles are you in, you know? Yeah, yeah. And do you cross train? A lot of great thing. Like I cross train. So my, my primary back tra- background is Wing Chun. And then a very close second to that is Filipino martial arts, uh, which encompasses weapons, boxing, groundwork, everything. And then I cross-trained BJJ and judo. Um, And I've actually done some Aki jiu-jitsu in the past as well. And I'm cross-training also catch wrestling right now as well. So I'm I'm doing everything I can when I can to try to cross-train. And I'm 48 years old. For me, it's about learning how to finish it as fast as humanly possible. I don't care if I got to take an elbow out of socket. I got to blow out a shoulder. Um, 
what that means is, is that I'm avoiding conflict. Yeah. You know, the loud mouth, you know, at the barbecue, I really don't care about that. I'm going to walk away. You know, the person who's got road rage. Okay. I'm driving away. I got no problem with that. You, you understand what I'm saying? I'm not, I'm not looking for a fight. I want to yeah. avoid a fight because I'm not 30 anymore. I'm not going to sit there and go rounds and rounds. I'm not interested in that. Um, you know, <laughs> yeah, I'm not interested in doing that. I don't have the physical ability to do it anymore. I just want to hurt you. Yeah. That's all I want to do. I'm all interested just so I don't want to fight. Yeah. So this whole idea of, of, of also being physically fit, we overlooked that as well. You know, um, you know, don't, don't neglect getting them reps in, man. Don't, don't neglect your kettlebell. You know, that's why I've got my shop set up the way it is. Cause I'm there most of the time. It's easy for me to get my reps in, you know, don't be afraid of your sandbag, get your, you know, get your kettlebell, you know, work your ground routines, do everything and try to get as much, at least try to get your 30 to 45 minutes a day in, you know, if, I don't care whether you're doing calisthenics, stretching, whatever, try to get that minimum of at least 30 minutes of a, of a good, a good workout. And if you can cap that off with some, some cardio of any kind, you're doing yourself a huge favor, a huge favor. Yeah. So when you're talking about all the different kinds of all of the things that I can't even repeat, <laughs> can you tell us like how someone could find like the martial art or the defensive training that works for them starting out? Like, you know, I don't know any of those. Well, uh, right now, a great start is, um, golly, there's so many good ones. Um, you know, it depends on your personality. Uh, so you, you basically get broken into two camps. You're either a striker, striker or a grappler. Okay. That's it. So when it comes to striking, um, you got boxing, you got Muay Thai, You've got um, a number of different types of striking arts. Uh, Aki Jiu-Jitsu is a combination of striking art. Uh, Filipino martial arts contains a lot of that. And then on your grappling side, you got the BJJ guys. You got catch wrestling. You got shoot to. Um, you got judo. Uh, judo. I've been taking judo for about a year and a half now, and it's it's fantastic. It's a it's a great art. Um, but you need to figure out who you are. And what I like to tell people is, is that, okay, if you've been known to be a, if you've been known to be a striker, then you need to cross train. If you've noticed that you find yourself leaning towards being a striker and always have been, then you need to push yourself. You need to get your ground game up, you know, cause there's these people nowadays, oh, well, I'll never end up on the ground. Uh, yeah, that's not going to play. I mean, cause I, I've spent time around moderate jujitsu guys. And I say moderate, extremely, extremely liberally and a moderate jujitsu guy will take the average person down in a heartbeat. Uh, yeah. I mean, as fast as you can blink your eyes, you're on your back. <laughs> yeah. So I tell guys, okay, if you're used to being a striker, maybe you should go try to find yourself. I mean, and I don't care. I'm not going to, I mean, Machado, Gracie, 10th planet. I don't care. As far as BJJ, I don't care. Um, in the way catch, you got catch can, which is probably one of the biggest ones. Even if you can find a friend of yours that's a good co a collegiate wrestler, is going to teach you a lot that you'll never know. Um, judo, jujitsu, like traditional Japanese jujitsu is great. Um, and just train it, get the licks in, and don't be afraid to take any. Yeah, that's that's the best thing I can say. And then, like, if you've normally used to being a grappler, you find yourself being a grappler, try shooting for the other side of that. I'm a huge, I love Muay Thai. I love, I love, uh, I love striking arts in general, but don't, don't try, don't put, cause 
the adversaries, dude, they're cross training. Mm-hmm. They're cross training. I promise you, they are cross training. They're getting it. And if you don't, I mean, anymore nowadays, I bet you I can line up 10 guys at any given time, at any given place. And I can bet you I can pull out at least five who've either trained jujitsu or they know explicitly how to do a single leg takedown. Anywhere. I don't care. I can stop in any mall and pull five guys out. And I guarantee you I can get at least five. Yeah. 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 So I feel like just like shooting, you need to practice what you suck at. Not necessarily. Yep. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. If you, I love when people say, well, that's a, that's a fine motor skill. So I can't practice that. Okay. Wait a second. How do motor skills become gross? Start with Mm -hmm. you practice fine motor skill becomes, it still becomes gross. Yeah. So fine motor skill is only fine motor skill to you yep. because you're not used to doing it. But once you get enough reps, anything can, be, can become gross. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. You're not wrong. You're not wrong. So for, for you, what has martial arts taught you like mentally, not just physically? Um. Under the correct conditions, it has, um, I've had the distinct opportunity to be around people with this very subdued, um, I'm trying to think of the right word for it, but like, it takes, it doesn't, certain things don't rattle you anymore. Mm -hmm. You try to keep a very subdued mind under, you know, like certain things can shake you up that are, that are you know, uh, rather mundane sometimes, but when it comes to like serious events, you find out that your mind goes into a completely different mode. Um, it's weird how, if you're used to sparring and fighting, unfortunately in my past, a lot of street fighting, but it was, it was, it was, it was just playing out pure aggression. But when you spar a lot and you train with a lot of people who just, just beat your ass, they, you start learning how to control that, um, that part of your mind that wants to freak out for lack of a better word, yep. you know, that part of your, or is like, yeah, 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 yeah. you're used to yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah. That part of your, and, and it's like a muscle. People don't realize it that like when you spar and you fight and you train that constant repetitive move, the constant repetitive of, of pressing your emotions, like expanding and contracting them. And, you know, suppressing certain things and allowing certain things to do what they're going to do. And then a lot of times this idea of like, okay, just stop and breathe, Mm -hmm. you know, just try to keep your respiratory under control so that you can try to get through something. Uh, That's where I think where I've found where the grounding arts, where the, where the, where the, the, the grappling arts have really helped me because for that reason, you basically, you know, you got somebody that's mauling you. You know, and a lot of times you're in very uncomfortable positions for long periods of time and your body is screaming, Right. you know, and then you don't want to breathe. You want to freak out, but then you can't because they're paying attention too. Right. most people don't understand that uh, good ground fighters, they know how to, they're, they're thieves of respiration. They don't, most folks don't even realize that good ground fighters are they're They're an absolute thief of respiratory ability. They will, they, that's one of the biggest weapons that ground fighters use is they, inhibit your ability to breathe yeah and when you work in it when you're when you're trying to 
conduct yourself in a, in a respiratory, respiratory constricted environment, your mind wants to freak out. Mm -hmm. I can't breathe. I'm not getting enough oxygen. You'll find that your body will rebel. And the crazy thing is, is that, you know, you get choked out a couple of times. You get it, you know, you get that out of your system. Yeah, just move along. And then once you start trying to play into that, you start learning how to try to control those emotions yeah. when you get pressed. And that's a really good thing, people. I mean, because anybody, if you haven't had it done, it, it's or it's like the same thing when you crawl into a boxing ring with somebody. You know, if you crawl into a boxing ring and you're afraid to get hit, mm. uh, the very first gym that I ever, first training academy I ever went to, I remember walking into this place and I remember there was this, there was this red circle in the far corner of the gym. And I walk up to the instructor and I said, Hey, I'm here to learn, blah, blah, blah. And he shakes his head and he goes, yes, yes. And he tells me to stand over there in that red circle. I said, okay, great. So I walk over there and I stand, it was actually it was a Muay Thai school in the late eighties. And I stand in the red circle and I see him walk over to a, a student who's working out and I see him talking and they're conversing. He's pointing over there and he's thing. And he, he walks over with the kid and he goes, okay, stand here, put your hands down. I said, okay, I'm standing here like this. And before I could say anything, the student leveled me with a right cross, just dropped me like third period French. And he, he picked me up. The instructor picks me up. He goes, okay, now that that's over. And I said, why did he hit me? He goes, well, I want to make sure you, you could have asked me. I've been hit a million times. Yeah. yeah. But it was the point that I don't, I want to make sure you're not afraid to be hit. Right. <laughs> the same thing with grappling. You know, you get choked out the very first time. The, the, the crazy thing is the very first time you ever choked out, um, <laughs> you feel like you're going to freak out. I mean, like the world is coming to an end. I mean, you, it, it is, it is, it's scary. I'm not going to lie to you. The first time it ever happens is scary. Um, but after you're, you know, you, after you have had it done the first time and they wake you up, <laughs> um, yeah, you just kind of come out of it. You're like, oh, okay, well, I'm still here. Let's keep going. You know, and but I think you have to. You have to. People, you know, it's it's, it's good. To, a, it's good to be humbled. Humility is a powerful thing. Um, and the next thing is, is that these guys, believe it or not, there's a lot of guys that that are they're not choking you out for the wrong reasons. If that makes any sense, a lot of those guys are choking you out because you need to. You need. Hey, you know, you either uh, well, you allowed me to slip your guard, or you allowed me to do this. That's why I'm in here, and that's why you're getting choked out. There's consequences. Yeah. Like everything else in life, there's consequences to decisions. Well, nothing more so in, than in a martial atmosphere. You know, it doesn't get more consequential yeah. than that. So I've learned if you see a red circle, <laughs> you're about to get it, bro. Yeah, that's it, man. That's it. Nap, nap. <laughs> nap, nap. But <laughs> what I was going to think of as you're talking is you're almost establishing a baseline for people. So. Yep. That, that they know where it's going, they know what's happening. And then, like you said, then they can understand, oh, I can still get it. I can, I can deal with this. Yeah. Yeah. It's in, in like, you know, for certain arts, it, it, I, I love, I love the concept of the warrior ethos. I don't care what art it is. They have all kind of got their own thing going on. Like for us, knife guys, Filipino martial arts guys, um, there's a concept and a mindset that we call the feeder It's called the feeder mind. And it's basically, we talk about it like it's a current. It's like a current that flows. And no matter what's going on that you may understand or see actively, it's almost like, um, like if you're in a debate or you're in a conversation with somebody and you're vo with your vocabulary and your nuances in vocabulary, 
you are leading the conversation in a particular direction, but you're doing it subversively. Okay. Okay. That's the feeder mind. Okay. Is that in this, like, even though I'm not armed, mm -hmm. I'm already armed. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. You know, even though it looks like that's like, we don't like to use the word defensive tactics. We don't, we don't use that terminology because for me to use the term defensive tactic means I've already taken a submissive role. Defensive. Gotcha. I'm defend. I'm defending. No, no, that's, we don't, we don't think that way. It's kind of like my favorite line in one of the Marvel movies. Um, first Avengers when Iron Man and they got in Captain America have got a hold of Loki and they're flying out and Thor lands on the roof. And comes in, takes off with Loki. All right. So Iron Man loads up and he's getting ready to leave. Captain America tells him, he says, wait, we have to develop a plan of attack. And Stark turns and looks at him and goes, I have a plan. Attack. <laughs> yeah. That's that's the that's the feeder mind. That's that's a that's a pop culture reference to the feeder mind. Look at that. I think there's stuff in uh, Avengers and, and all of that that people need to go watch. <laughs> it's hilarious. Uh, and, 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 but I found I was saying there like, yeah, you know, I mean, there's just some really cool, but you know, to me, I saw that one scene and I'm actually going to start referencing some of the pop culture references yeah. um, in my goon rules stuff. I'm going to start making reference to that. I mean, because that's, yeah. you know, that's, you know, I, that's the yeah, feeder mind, man. Millennials. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I don't care how, you know what? I don't care what it takes to get the message across as long as it gets across. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, that's like, and I, I think there's a stigma too. Like, you know, in my career of martial arts, I've, I've run across, um, I, I golly, I mean, and, and especially, you know, Wing Chun, you know, Wing Chun, the, the system that I was with is very European. Okay. So that organization, a uh, particular organization, it was a lot of women. Um, and a lot of people, uh, like homosexuals and people like very broad spectrum of individuals. And let me tell you something, man, I tell you late nineties, early two thousands, I met some people that were just real ass kickers, man. And it, I mean, gender and whatever sexual preference you were, it made nobody gave a crap. Yeah. Nobody gave a crap. You could be standing there getting your face bashed in yeah. by anybody. And, I, I, I think there's a bit of a stigma now, like you've got to be this alpha apex male um, in order to, to, to run like that. I got news for you. I've, I've run into alpha apex humans in this lifetime, people that you would not suspect mm -hmm. to be in that much control of their ethos of the world that is surrounding them. And that has given me a great deal of insight. Maybe it's because I've traveled. Yeah. I've been around and, and, and spoke to different people and crossed hands with a lot of people and done some different things. Yeah. But I think that's why I can sit back and say, I think it's a mindset. I don't care. I don't care what your orientation is. I don't care what your gender is. I don't care. It's yeah. irrelevant to me because I've seen, I've seen that mind, that mindset that I've got control over this. Yeah. So in other words, I'm going to take control over my safety. Well, it doesn't matter what criminal is not going to be like, oh, I'm not going to hit them. They're, they're gay. Or I'm not going to hit them. That's a female. Huh. That's they don't care. They don't care. They don't care. Yeah. They're not going to know they, that they're, they're going to attack anybody that has money or something they want or, or worse. So yeah.
And, yeah. and the, you know, that's why I, I think the gun industry in, in particular, I think could stop. I think last year was the beginning of it. You know, what was it? By March of last year, I forget how many millions of guns had been sold. And they were, these were new time salespeople. Yeah. And I think the firearms industry at that point, if they would have been, if they had taken that momentum, they were poised to say something. And they could have. They could have. They, of personal defense, of medical training, of anything else that they could yeah. And, and I mean, for once they could have been, uh, but again, politics and whatever sociopolitical position Mm -hmm. took center stage instead of it being a human thing, you know, the, the firearms, this idea of self protection, self value self, because the idea of two a, the founding fathers never said two a only applies to this group of people right or this group of people and to me the idea of bearing arms it doesn't it's not just oh well you know this no it's it's it, they there's their opportunity to all encompass they could have really brought in a, a whole new group of people that could have made a huge difference yeah. that could but again it's socio-political however you want to lean it but the great part about me being a knife guy uh i don't give a crap now now if you've read on killing have you read on killing yes yeah um so i i did a i did an interview with uh gun talk media a few years back and i told them i said you know the the problem the the problem with the idea of gun people and knife people is yeah you got pure gun people pure knife people and then you got overlapping circles in the middle uh, the issue with knife people is, is that if you've read on killing, you understand the difference between a gun and a knife person. Yeah. Because it's this guy over here has got the willingness to look you in the eyes and put your candle out. Yep. Where this one here, it's different. It's at range. There's a separation. There's a, what, I forget what Grossman calls it. There's this, uh, because you're separated from your target yeah there's a that displacement in space causes a there's a difference in reaction to the action that's being taken and i think that the great thing about knife people is is that dude we're all encompassing if you've ever gone to blade show Mm -hmm. i mean you see all manner of people there yeah yeah i mean questions about that coming up because yeah and, and again, I'm just a proponent of self-preparedness. I think that when we think about like, hey, don't bring a knife to a gunfight. Well, it's the same as don't bring a gun to a knife fight. You're going to get cut and stabbed before you can ever get your gun out, right? Um, but there's a level too of just, I have a lot of people that have guns, a lot of them that carry in their purse, their backpack. Well, that's not really preparedness. Um, but I think about like knife people, it's like, if you have your head up, you're not on your phone, you're surrounding and looking around and you look like you know, like you're self-aware that's intimidating to anybody that's going to be an attacker or whatever. Right. Yeah. You're not showing vulnerabilities. That's what's really the difference. I think for me seeing that. That's what, yeah. I mean, those are laws of the jungle. Yeah. You know, you're realizing that that is not, I mean, cause remember that the people who prey on the weak, they're not looking for a fight. 
they don't want to fight. They don't want to deal with a fight. They they want an easy, um, they want an easy mark. What is it? The the red pill or whatever those people, blue pill, red pill. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Could happen to them. They just, yeah yeah they're they're the ones that walk out of Walmart you know on their phone Midnight. all the way across the parking lot. I mean and and that's yeah. and 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 I think a lot of people are just extremely naive. Yes. To think that you're not being watched. You're extremely naive. Um, criminals don't crim, criminality. They literally see what they do as a job. No, really, they do. It's a gig. Yeah, it's a gig, and they and they and they are very and a lot of them are very good at it. They're they under you know think about it. You, you there's a, there's a concept that the military guys use you know a target package. Um, criminals operate very similar. Okay. You know, they treat places like Walmarts and malls and places like that. That's a game trail. And and they've and they profile. Yep. They know exactly what they're looking for. And they're scanning and they're going through mass amounts of human beings and they're marking yeah. potential, potential targets. And if you don't think that that's happening when you go to Walmart or when you go to a mall, you're extremely naive. Yeah. Yep. And that what you're talking about right there. That self-awareness part where you're head up, you're scanning, extremely vigilant, that, believe it or not, that gets you one click off on the flag package. It does. It does. Like I, I, it's super lame as a girl, but I have a backpack purse. <laughs> so what does that do though? That frees up my hands every single mm-hmm. time. That's why the double store backpack, <laughs> one sleeve or one whatever <laughs> is so yep. key. But I teach a lot of females that it's like, okay, yeah. Okay. If you have a concealed carry purse and that's the way you want to carry it, then that purse should be here and your hand should be close if it needs to be happening. But, um, hands-free is huge and head up is huge because how many people have their kid in their hand, their phone here and their keys. And there's a lot going on people that you pushing the shopping cart. Another thing too, is, is like self-awareness and threat assessment, Mm -hmm. um, and being able to discriminate, and recognize potential threats yep um you don't realize first of all a loaded parking lot is very easy to move through discreetly yep and you can be up on somebody extremely fast if you really try um and what the the poor mother of three that's just trying to get her groceries into the car both her hands are free she's trying to wrangle three kids you know, a person who's got ill intentions could be on her when she doesn't even realize it. He's within armor. I mean, because I try to teach people this too. When I'll do a threat assessment course, there's a reason why when they set up military bases, there's the whole concept of the wire. There's a whole concept of patrolling. The reason why you patrol is you don't want the enemy at the gate. Yeah. If the enemy's at the gate, you're in trouble. <laughs> yeah. You want to intersect the enemy out at the wire. Yep. That's why you patrol. Well, moment an individual is within arm's reach of you they're at the gate yeah or or we could even say if you want to use a teller drill you know if you want to use the 21 to 21 foot rule we could call the 21 foot rule the gate yep they're there they they breached your perimeter and they're in it and they're within a few steps of being able to get to you what you're saying is 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 one of the most power to me the best fight that you can win is the one that you never have to get into exactly exactly because all, all your coolness and all your tactics and all the crap you trained, I don't care how good you are. Guess what? The moment you go to fisticuffs or the moment you go to mortal combat, 
there are no assurities. Nope. There's no, there's no assurities. There's no guarantee. There's no guarantee you're coming out of this. Yep. You know, when you're fighting for your life, there's no guarantee. And people think, well, I've trained this and I've got this pistol or I've trained this and I'm a Muay Thai fighter. No, you know how many Muay Thai fighters have died oh. in the field? You know how many, you know how many guys that we plant in Arlington every day, yeah. every day, the finest that this country has to offer. Don't make it. And they're 10 times the warrior we are. So here you are at home thinking you're sending, you know, your box of ammo a week downrange is going to cut it. No, man. Yeah. No. The, the, the criminal element, dude, that's why they're called criminals. Yeah. <laughs> I almost want people to go out and, and go test that theory. Go people watch. I love people watching. But oh, yeah. Yeah. Sit in the right places, observe people, and, and trust your gut. I've had people tell me that they almost were trafficked and they felt that they were being watched. And from store to store, I'm like, you are and you were. And that's, that's, yep. that's right here in your backyard. And I remember I was at a gas station actually leaving Kentucky um for all my matches but in the middle of the night and there was this like rate panel van well I park on the way other side to fill up the gas and this guy's just coming out and I see him like looking at the head of the the, the van that goes to the back of the van and I'm like he's already like looking to see if there's anybody else around you know and if you just stand there strong or, or you need to leave leave but like I'm not going to be on my phone or fiddling with trash you know I'm aware and I'm going to look at him dead in the eye they don't like that because that's like hey I see your face I know what you look like let's get let's go you know mm -hmm. it's a lot more things that you can do intimidating without having to pull a gun yeah so. yeah and that's letting them know because you know they've got a plan yeah but the moment you recognize them and call them out because mm -hmm. they had a plan they're going to walk up and they're going to do this. Well, the moment you stop and you, and you visually engage, even if it's at range, oh, they hate you it. visually engage, that's different. That changes everything. Yep. Because now you've kind of like, you've chucked the proverbial rock in their path. Yep. Because for a moment you stopped them. They had a plan. Remember? Oh yeah. They're rehearsing this in their head while they're going up and trying to walk up to you or trying to close range with you. And the moment you stop and you said, Hey, 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 Whoa, 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 Whoa. What are you doing? Why are you coming close to me? Yep. What do you want? You've now like, oh, oh, uh, that's the first sign that you've, you've stuttered them. So yeah, you're absolutely right. Yeah. That, that I think saved me that day, but head on a swivel guys. Um, I did want you to uh, talk a little bit about like, you've dedicated your life to also learning self-defense with knives. Um, yeah. so how do you blend that in with the use of martial arts? Do you actually like bring your knives to the gym or what do you do? Uh, that's a good question. That's a really good question. So there okay so knife being a range weapon yep um believe it or not i don't know if you've ever heard of this but there's a lot of rehearsing okay that goes on up here um and to to be a good to be well to be a good combatant in general um you need to have you need to have the fundamentals down so for me the the fundamentals are key um, understanding the, the proper concepts, maintaining range. Um, and for us, maintaining range is not the same as everybody else. Yeah. Maintaining range means I'm on top of you. Mm -hmm. um, for me, maintaining range is, is I'm staying as close to you as possible. It's different. Yeah. You know, we're gun guys. I want to get some space mm -hmm. to be, for me, it's different. My weapon's out and I want to close the gap on you. Gotcha. That's a different, it's a, defensive. we're doing attack. I'm attacking. Yeah. I'm, I'm attacking completely. Uh, 
Okay, here's some dumb questions actually for like sure. this. Um, I saw this, I went through the police academy, believe it or not, and I saw so many police officers were in training with their dominant hand, pull their knife or pull their flashlight. Well, how are you gonna shoot now? Yeah. <laughs> right? So where should they keep their knives? How should they draw their knives? Folding, fixed, all of that. I mean, what do you recommend? So I definitely, uh, weekend training, that was actually one of the biggest things that I did with law enforcement guys was yeah. giving them weekend development skills or just say non-dominant. They, yeah. they hate when I say weekend, just say non-dominant. Uh, non-dominant development is a big one. Uh, and I believe it or not, I incorporate a lot of the Filipino martial arts into that because they, they train that exclusively. Filipinos are really big, especially since we're big boxers. Um, you have to be able to fight uh, conventional as well as southpaw you have to be able to swing either way uh just because you don't know where you're going to be at yeah. um the second thing is 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 be okay to develop small skills first so anybody that i that would be wanting to learn non-dominant hand development probably one of the best things you can start out doing with trying to develop that is write. start to write try to write with your left hand or if you're right or vice versa um, calligraphy is probably one of the first skills that they learn in, in any sort of Asian art. Um, and it's directly associated with swordsmanship. And even, even in the Filipino martial arts, the Japanese do it, the Chinese do it. Um, and the, and the Filipinos do it as well. Calligraphy is, is, is big in this idea of, um, developing any sort of, it all begins there. Cause some of the finest motor skills in the hand are, are developed in writing. Um, so writing is a good way. The next thing is, is be okay with a Kaizen, Kaizen mindset, which is small steps. Be okay with making small steps and be okay with making mistakes. Um, the next thing is, is, uh, as far as what that's going to be really hard for me because I'm extremely partial, but if you like folders, great. Um, for me, folders are utilitarian. Um, I'm very much a fixed blade guy because her bags are packed, um, and she's ready to go to work. So, you know, there's a lot of great options. There's ATFs out the front. They're good. Um, automatics, there's all kinds of automatic out there. If you, if, if, you know, if you gotta, you know, try to cut the, cut the corner on that, then automatics are great. Uh, flippers are good. I just, I'm not a big you know, I'm a two is one, one is none kind of guy. So if you're already carrying a pistol, you got a, you know, you got a, a blade on your non-dominant side. You could even have, I'm, I'm even completely for having a third one. Um, I, I'm like, I carry a, like at times I'll carry a fixed blade on my strong side and I'll have a folder. I'll have a traditional style, like pocket knife. Yeah. Like an uncle Henry style thing in my left-hand pocket. Mm -hmm. And then I'll have a flipper in my back pocket um yep. people are like why oh, because i don't know yep. whatever you know i'd rather have it not need it than need it not have it yeah um well, ankle carry seems unique for fixed blades and it's less weight than a firearm like so even if you have a firearm i've seen a lot of like the flare jeans but having a cool strap to your legs seems practical yeah as long as you train it yeah uh, the, <laughs> the practicality um again that kind of goes back to what is your range preference? Yeah. Are you a striker or a grappler? Um, a lot of strikers is going to be very difficult. Mm -hmm. If you have very few grappling skills, it's going to be very difficult for you to get to your ankle blade. Right. If you don't have and understand how to get to that position and you don't practice it. Yeah. 
Um, yeah, I, I'm extremely partial with that. And as far as types, God, take your pick. Um, I'm a real big fan of spear tip. Um, I'm a real big fan of a spear point. I like spear points, especially for self-defense because they contain all the best elements in my opinion. Uh, especially for the concept of sewing machine where, you know, some of the activities where you're not going to be doing much slashing your, your most, your most devastating attacks with a knife are always going to be penetrative. It's always going to be punching holes in the bucket, the more holes in the bucket, the more liquid comes out of it. That's the way it goes. Um, and spear points are awesome for that because the penetration and in, in muscle tissue is fantastic. Um, and also your, your belly on your primary bevel is so like, normally if you have a, a blade that has a, like a, let's say a buck knife, it's one of the easiest ones. Everybody knows what they are. The belly on that is a predominant belly. Well, what most people don't realize is the reason why the knife is shaped that way is for, for a skinning or a slicing action right? to be able to slice. Well, the knife naturally, because of that, if you ever ask a person what a really good skinner is, is that blade that it's not going to dive as much so that you can just kind of easily work your way through the through the hide. Um, well, a, a spear point has a flatter trajectory on the primary, which means that high speed slashing with a perpendicular bevel. In other words, if I'm holding the knife straight out like in a fencing grip and I just slice, it's more like a razor. Yeah. The primary bevel is a flatter, so it doesn't want to come out. It's naturally a blade with a belly. It naturally wants to come out. So I have to self-consciously apply pressure to be able to cut deeper. Right. So if you're going to, if you're going to panic slash, you want a flatter, you want a flatter primary trajectory. You want to be more razor like because it's going to stay to where it's going to cut deeper. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I like spear points for, um, any ladies that may be listening to the show, um, if you're, you know, if you're not really skilled, if you, if you gotta have a secondary on you, if you're not going to carry a fixed blade, I definitely recommend, um, if it's, if it's applicable to the state that you live in, uh, I definitely recommend a good OTF, a good out the front. Um, a lot of your out the fronts are double-edged, which will make them very good for stabbing, uh, for deep penetration. Um, and again, yeah, OTFs are great for that. Um, and again, there, there's something, if you already have a gun, you know, and they're, they're very light duty. And if you're, you're on a run or a jog or something like that, chances are you're in jogging shorts or you're going to be in tighter pants or yogas or something like that. You want to be able to keep it somewhere where it's not going to come flying out. Most of them have a clip. Um, you may not even be able to, I don't know. I'm not very good with, uh, as far as the way pistols and the way of concealment, but I know that a lot of the really good OTFs. Um, like Microtech makes great OT. They're a little, they're a little pricey, but they're really good. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but you can find, you know, I'd say try to find a, try to pay at least if you're, if you, if you want to get an out the front, be willing to pay at least 75 to hundred bucks at least. Um, don't go to the gas station and buy an OTF, please. I have a question later on talking about that kind of stuff. Yeah. Don't do that. Don't, don't, you know, do yourself a favor. I mean, you wouldn't buy a $50 gun. Don't buy, you know, a $50 knife out the front OTF. Don't do that. No. Um, We're talking about one purchase that can save your life. That's less expensive than uh, uh, insurance, you know, hospital bill, funeral. Yeah. Don't, don't do that. <laughs> don't, don't, don't. It's like, it's like being on an airplane and sh- 
you know, strapping your ass to the lowest bidder. Come on. Yeah. yeah. It, it's priorities at the end of the day. And that's, what's so frustrating. You know, I see a lot of people when I was younger, when I was getting my concealed carry 21 years old, I was like to the day I have to take a class, get my permit. Well, like I can't afford that $50 for a class. Okay. I can tell you where that $50 is going to come from <laughs> your drinking budget, your eating budget, your coffee at Starbucks. Like I'll yeah. tell you where that comes from. So I don't want to hear that prioritization. So. Exactly. And your willingness yeah. to, to make sacrifices, to make sure you're going to have what you need, you know? Yeah. Um, there's a lot of really good imports right now. CRKT is building some great blades. Um, they've got a couple of punch daggers out there. That's kind of the next thing for me. If you're going to go fix blade and if you're not real experienced, uh, punch dagger is great because they're very hard to get away from somebody once they got them in their hands. Um, and then you're just slashing. You're like a, you're like a, you're like a four-year-old, you're like a four-year-old with a Sharpie. I mean, it just, you know, you just slashing. That's it. Stab, stabbing and slashing, you know? Um, and without getting into classes, if you're a lady, whatever, whatever comes near you, stab it. Hands, arms, face, anything. Just poke a hole in it. Mm -hmm. Just jam holes in it. The more holes you could jam, the better. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I try not to laugh, but I was thinking of ballistic gel testing and dummy testing that I've gotten to do. And it's really quite, it's quite stress relieving. Yeah, it's great. Uh, I, I've been wanting to buy one, the one with the bones and everything in it. Because I've got, oh God, I've got a couple of things that I, like, I want to take that one karambit that I have and I wanted to have do a video. Give me 30 seconds. No, give me 15 seconds to see how much damage I can do to this thing. Um, On slow-mo. Oh, it's great. It, yeah. it just, yeah, ballistic gelatin is a blast to have fun with. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, there's just so many choices. The biggest thing too is, is you got to get training too. Yes. I mean, if you're going to make the knife a part of what you do and I, and unfortunately, Harder to find. well, here's the deal. You get a lot of people who teach a lot of defensive knife, mm -hmm. but they don't teach you knife. Yeah. That's like me teaching you gun defense, but I'm not going to teach you how to fire a gun. <laughs> you're not wrong. Yeah. It, yeah. it makes, it makes zero sense. It makes zero sense. So like I've, I've taught classes because the way, the way I teach is you learn the knife first. I don't even teach you any defensive tactics. Nice. You learn the knife first. That's it. Right off the get go. You're learning, you're learning wet templates. You're learning vitals templates. You're learning, um, understanding passive energy. You're learning how to deal with circular and forward energy. You're learning how to, you're learning footwork. You're learning how to close space quickly and you're learning how to deploy. Um, and you're learning how to ploy and hit as many targets as you can with it as fast as you possibly can. And it's all based on Kaizen. Basically, I don't know if you've ever studied Kaizen method. Um, I teach based on Kaizen method. It's actually the same method that the Japanese use in manufacturing and industry. And actually the basis of learning any Japanese art is Kaizen. I need you it's, to post a class. I don't know where, and I don't know when, but I need you to put like on a class. Yeah. You, you set it up. We'll figure it out. Um, Kaizen is, is this idea of small steps. You start small to, to, you know, Frodo said it or not Frodo Baggins said it. Baggins. Longest journey means longest journey begins with the first step. So yeah, small steps. And Kaizen focuses on that. You, you got small incremental steps to an achievable goal. Okay. You met that goal. We've developed skill sets to get there. Okay. So now we're going to take these skill sets and we're going to move on to the next goal. That's the way that works. And that's, and that's how, that's how I teach knife. Yeah. It, it's in that particular context. Uh, a lot of guys, people 
gun at the first class, like a loaded gun. Here you go. Figure it out. No, <laughs> no, no, you don't do that. But, but the fun, the, the hard part about it though, is not a lot of arts do. the Filipinos primarily do that. They teach you the weapon. Yeah. And then you learn everything. In other words, it's not like, okay, well, wait a second, we're going to do all this stuff and then we'll learn a knife later. Filipinos yeah. don't do that way. They actually, and not only that is Filipinos are really good about um, associative tactics. In other words, um, so the same strike, what we would refer to as a one and a two or, or basically a forward and a backhand hammer fist applies to whether I'm swinging a stick, whether I'm slicing, whether I'm striking, it's still the same. I still apply the same technique. And then as it, because the way it closes at five ranges, five ranges close. Well, the only thing that changes is your ability to move, react to pressure, and then feed stimulus. That's going to change because as the range closes, you're an ability to be able to visually account for activity and movement changes. You can't. So there's a more, lot more, there's a lot more pressure involved with, with the hands and being able to move. That's neat. Okay. Take a class from Rob, y'all. That's what I've learned. Goon rules. <laughs> yep. Yep. So, okay. For you going back, back, back. Do you remember the first knife that you ever bought or, or got yourself? First knife was actually given to me. Yeah. Uh, and the first knife that was actually given to me was a... It was an old timer slip joint by my grandfather. You know, the typical ones that have got usually one large blade and then two small ones. Uh, it was typically something that uh, he, he would use to clean his pipe out or whatever. And I remember he had this junk drawer and I was probably about nine. I had just gone to move and live with them after my father passed away. And uh, I remember he had this drawer that he had candy bars in. And I remember he sent me into this drawer to get candy bars. And I saw these two knives in the drawer and I remember being nine years old and I brought the candy bar and a knife. <laughs> and I was like, wow, grandpa, can I have this knife? And he's like, no, you can't have it right now. We'll talk about it. So, uh, I, I was, I, I ag probably aggravated the crap out of him. And then, yeah, basically pick one. I said, I'm like, you know, I can leave the candy bar. Yeah. I don't want it anymore. I really don't know if I want this candy bar anymore. And, uh, and then when I was turned 10, he ended up giving me an old timer. And then, uh, and then I had found out from somebody when I was around 11 that the best knives came from files. Like nail files? No, like a file that you would use for filing wood or steel. Oh, okay. So I remember being in the shop and coming across a file back in the tool room. I'm like, oh, I can make a knife out of this. So there I was grinding away on this brand new file and I got in trouble for that. But, uh, and then I ended up actually doing that, actually making a few knives out of files and, uh, the, but, uh, 11, 11 or 12, making your first knife at 11 or 12, just trying to make them, you know, just grinding up a bunch of files and getting in trouble, you know, <laughs> just <laughs> that, that was it. I mean, that's what I was doing. That's what was happening. Then. Uh, I remember using a bench top grinder, just an old stone grinder. And then I'd be in there grinding, just grinding the crap out of this, taking the temper out of it and everything, just useless as a knife afterwards. But yeah, and then, you know, then later on, uh, my uncle, um, I had an uncle who worked for Schrade. Um, one of the first Schrade plants was in Ellenville, New York. 
and uh, I had an uncle who worked for, for trade and uh, he had given another one of my uncles, my grandfather's brother, my mother's, my mother's brother, my uncle Dave, uh, he had given him a shrade that he had, it was actually a factory second from the, from the facility and gave it to my uncle. And then a couple of, when I started deer hunting, I started bow hunting at 13. And, uh, when I started bow hunting, he gave me that shrade and that was the second knife that was ever given to me. And I still have it actually. It's in my, it's in my gun. It's in my gun case with my uh, deer rifle. Awesome. I always ask people if they caught that they kept their first whatever it was firearm knife whatever and so if you like, the I, old timer I don't have anymore but I, that trade I still have it really cool so uh I gotta know here's the here's the question how'd you get your nickname Philo <laughs> my wife she is the one who keeps me I'm never she will not allow me to get full of myself in any way shape or form so when I, so when the, uh, the surveying industry went bad, well, actually it wasn't just the surveying industry. It was a housing industry went bad in 2008, uh, took a really hard hit. And, uh, so I started making training knives out of aluminum and I would hand file. I would have a bandsaw and I'd hand file to make trainers. And I was doing pretty good with those. I had guys, friends of mine that I trained with that would buy them. And one day my wife yells downstairs and she doesn't call me Philo. She calls me Geppetto. (laughs) You know who Geppetto is, right? Pinocchio. Yeah. The father, the The shoemaker. (laughs) She tells me, she calls me in Spanish downstairs. She calls me Geppetto. Come up and eat. And, and I was like, really? Come on, man. You know? So a few weeks later, she yells down to me and she calls me Philo and it just stuck. And I, and, and I knew cause in Spanish, afilao, afilao means it's sharp. The Philo is the sharp side of the knife. It's also the term used in baking for a dough It's called Philo dough. And the reason why it's called Philo is because it's fine, which it's a very thin a very thin dough. That's why we call this, you know, on the Spanish, we call this sharp side of the knife, the filo, because it's the very thin edge of the blade. Fantastic facts there, guys. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's, but that's how it all happened in 12 Geppetto. years. Geppetto. Yeah. <laughs> that talk about letting, cause I was feeling really good about myself too. I was like, yeah, man, I'm doing such a great job. Pat myself on the back, you know, and then she, in, in one moment, one moment, she's like, like the balloon. Yep. All the air came out. But, and then that ever since then, and it's funny because it's only the people who really know me really, really well, um, specifically in the industry, um, know me by that. The funny thing is, is like, uh, people will call me that, like, we'll be at a booth or something. We'll be a blade show or something like that. And people will dress me. They'll call me Philo and Jesse and Jack are like, who are you talking to? And they're like, no, we're talking to Philo over here. And they're like, who, who is that? You know? And no, that's me, dude. I mean, cause outside of these circles, I, I'm another guy, you know? Right. Yeah. Totally different. That's awesome. Yeah. 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 So yeah, that's where I got it from. That's awesome. Yep. Yeah. I think that people are going to forget that that came from Pinocchio, by the way. That just made me really sad to think about that. <laughs> yeah. She, uh, and she still laughs to this day. That's awesome. Yeah. She's still, yeah. She's my biggest fan. So. Good, good. She's my biggest fan and my kids, uh, my wife and my kids have been, I'll be honest with you. I could, well, 
um, there's a, there's a segment out of the book of Deuteronomy that I pray before I lay hands on anything. Um, I think Deuteronomy, uh, concerning craftsmanship. And, um, before I lay hands on any piece of steel or I do any kind of work, I pray that prayer. And I also, yeah, I pray the, uh, I pray that prayer and I pray the Arianic blessing, uh, before I'm going to commence to making anything. Uh, so everything that I have and everything that I am and everything that I could ever be is because the God of my fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob through the Christ, through through Christ, Yeshua is I, I, I would be nothing without him. Um, everything that good that has ever come out of me has been because of him, because I know what I'm like on my own. And, uh, that's, I mean, I hate to be a serious, serious about it, but at the, where I'm at right now, people would look at where I'm at and they would be like, you know, bro, what about this? And what about that? You're doing this. I'll be honest with you, dude. I'm just a goon, man. I'm serious. I'm just a goon. I'm just a goon who doesn't deserve half of what he's got. And I wouldn't have what I have, whether it be, you know, the ability to create or any of these things without the father, I just, I'd be lost without him. And, you know, I have a wonderful family who supports me and, um, you know, the, the people who are closest to me understand that. And, um, you know, people say, Oh, great job. You're doing good. Well, I'm not really doing anything. I'm just, I'm walking in the path that he's given me. That's all. Yeah. I'm doing a great job of it. And I bet your entire family is trained and men will be scared of your daughters already. Mike, don't even go there. Mike, it's because they're raised with it. You know, like they were into it until they were like, until they were like 12, 13, you know, and then now they're just doing their own thing. My son is coming around, you know, because he, you know, he just wants to be in shape and he wants to be active. And so he's picking, but now he's my okay, believe it or not, though. I mean, I'll go do demonstrations and stuff around here and I grab him because, yeah, because a lot of times I'll be sitting there thinking about something like, hey, come here a second. You know, and he knows just enough that I can play around with him. Yeah. Uh, and for that, you know, he, but he's getting into a little bit. The girls now they're all armed. Um, actually they're all, they all got knives. Now my wife and my daughters, my, now my oldest daughter is they're, they're really chomping at the bit to get their pistol permits. They're, they're, they're really chomping at the bit. Now it's again, it's time. It's, you know that I can do the Florida one for them. Florida can get them all of the states and I don't have to have a specific classroom and all that stuff. So really, yeah. Offline, but, uh, well, well, they took, they took a course in chat. Um, they took a course in chat. Great one. There's a place down there called Zerk Ops. I need to get you hooked up with them, uh, Tammy and Ron. So uh, Tammy and Ron, Ron was an instructor at CPD. Okay. And that's how I met him is uh, he was the one who would chaperone me when I would teach in service and I would teach academy. He was one of the lead instructors. And then after he's still in the police department, he's actually running more or less running the academy now. Now he's got his own place in chat just outside in Harrison, Tennessee. But they'd be great people for you to know. They're good folks, and uh, they've got it going on, man. They, as far as teaching goes, they, yeah. they're pop, they're popping the lock, man. They're moving, they're moving, they're moving people, man. They're doing a really good job of it too. That'd be awesome. And I think that there's a, there is a lot of people out there that don't know this. Um, 
Florida offers out of state residency permits. So you still get all of the same reciprocity and benefits. So you don't have to be in Florida to take your Florida class and get your Florida permit. And that's across the board with other, other states issue non-resident permits. So take advantage of those for people listening, like they're out there. So we're thinking about getting a residency in Florida, actually, because we've actually talked about that there's a possibility that Florida may be the location that I'll retire in. Yeah. Um, just because we have a lot of family there. Yeah. Yeah. And so that'd be definitely something to talk about, you know, um, getting them squared away. But my another thing, too, is they work at UK. Yeah. And um, that was another thing that, you know, because like my daughter wants to carry, but she wouldn't be able to carry on campus. She'd have to keep her firearm in the vehicle. Yeah. And I told her, I said, well, that's better than nothing. So they keep uh, I made a uh, custom Damascus Kiridachi for all my wife and kids. So they all carry custom Damascus Kiridachi. They keep it in their purse. And my son has one that he'll keep in his pocket. But um, yeah, they got something on them. They've always got something on them all the time. Yeah, you got to instill that. And I think that's awesome. Yeah, Whether you want to believe it or not. It's, it's here. So get ready. <laughs> What's here? Uh, everything. Uh, dangerous here. The criminals are here. Oh, yeah. It, it, yeah, it's on our home front. It's not just overseas and all that. that we no, see. no. I, I send pictures to people all the time. I'll do the memes, you know, while you're while you're sitting at the house eating Cheetos and doing podcasts. You know, they're 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 working out. Yeah, our pop tarts. They're working out right now, right now while you're while you're doing this podcast and getting ready to crush a pop tart. They're out there get they're out there getting a swole on. For a four hour podcast, it's like I need something. Okay, you're killing me. You're not wrong. Um, okay, this is a fun question though. How many okay. times have you uh, accidentally cut yourself on blades? Uh, <laughs> only once. No way. Yeah. No way. Yep, it's true. I, you can ask the guy. You can ask the guys at the shop. I very rarely, almost never cut myself. Your whole life. Well. Okay. So I cut myself once, but I wasn't working with, so I was, uh, I used to like to build uh, car audio equipment okay. and I cut myself with a razor cause I was skinning material off of a board. So I cut myself right below my thumb to the bone with a razor, but that wasn't me, working. you know, yeah. um, when I was surveying one time, uh, we were in uh, homestead, we were in the Everglades and I was cutting line and my hands were real sweaty and I hit a branch and the blade came out of my hands and it did a twirly and it came down and cut me right across the knee. Oh. Um, but that's it. I mean, I've cut myself like doing work mostly like with yeah. a chisel. I jam myself with a chisel, run myself with a screwdriver or working stuff like that. But it, like with a knife, once uh i don't know if you've ever seen the karambits that i build uh, i think so yeah yeah all right the halcone that they yeah. sell at double star that's that's my girl that's 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 the blade that i cut my teeth on professionally cool um she i've had i've had one bite me to the bone but that's it that literally had one run me right through the palm of my hand right oh, to the bone oh. um but that's it i'll be honest with you i'm i don't know it's i'm Really, 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 really locked up. Um, I'm like working in the kitchen, chopping things, nothing. <laughs> okay, I 
podcast for all of y'all listening. I've cut my hand with every single knife I've purchased. Oh, <laughs> uh, I cut myself one time really good. Uh, we were at USN. We were at a uh, usual suspect network show two or three years ago. And I reached into the box and one of the knives was out of its sheath uh, and I cut myself, but that's it. As far as like, Hey, I was messing around or I was doing this and I cut myself or I was sharpening. Nah, doesn't happen. Okay. Fair enough. No, it just doesn't. I mean, I'm not, I'm trying to think and I no, it just doesn't happen. Like I said, you can even, you can even ask my guys. I mean, they're cause they're with me all the time. Yeah. Yeah. No, I believe you. That's pretty nice. I'm accident prone. We know this though. Um, <laughs> <laughs> knives and knives and being accident prone. Not good. Not good. <laughs> not good. Not good. <laughs> Bad things are going to happen. I can't stay on my feet. <laughs> like I do end up on the ground. So I need to be a grappler. <laughs> yeah. Well, no, you're doing it by proxy though. Yeah, I know. I know. Yeah. I'm there because I'm not there because I want to be there. I'm just ending up there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. Um, okay. Going back to, we were talking about fixed blades, folder knives and all of that. Um, but if you were to put together like a nice starter kit or like you said, having multiple ones on them, what would you recommend someone have? And why would someone use, you know, a fixed blade versus a folding blade? Well, the, like I'd mentioned before is, is, um, um, the amount of movement that it takes to get a folder open. Mm -hmm. Um, even, even a thumb, uh, and I've actually pressure tested a lot of this. I've got a lot of guys that I work with will take training folders and I'll basically say, okay, I'm going to do a typical scenario where we're going to do a takedown. You got to get to your folder out and you've got to be able to stab me vitally before I take you to the ground. And it very seldom can happen, especially just because of the amount of motor skill um, that it takes to get a folder out. And especially if you don't train it. Yeah. Especially, especially if you don't train it and you don't understand how to keep range. Um, the reasoning, again, I like folders. I mean, I like, I like fixed blades because it's just basically, I mean, it's draw it, fire. Right. Yeah. That's it. Bang. It's, it's a no thought process. And then as you progress into the more mechanical versions, yes, it helps you bridge that gap. But I've I've spent some time with Murphy and what can happen will. So I'm not a luck guy like that's where like the funny thing is I talk a lot with the with uh, the folks at double star and they're, they're really big on, they're like, they like, they, well, they've had great luck in, with a lot of what they do. I'm not that guy. Luck has not ever been on my side. So to me, when people start talking about luck, I'll say, Oh, you mean where preparation and opportunity meet, you know? And they're like, yeah, but this isn't, you know, yeah, but we were just really lucky. And I'm like, Oh, wait a minute. You mean the last dying wish to those who think winning was an accident that luck See, yeah. so for me, I'm not that guy. So for me, I try to put the odds in my favor. Right. Um, so yeah, I'm, again, as you go up in complexity, it does bridge the gap in deployability. But there's, in my opinion, purely opinion, uh, there's more that can go wrong. Yeah, well, it's like adding a safety. I don't believe in having safeties on your carry guns. I get, I mean, 2011s are awesome, unless you train, unless you train. Yeah. But yeah, if, if people can just draw, point, shoot, that's gonna be the majority of people carrying, you know? Yeah. So. Yeah. Well, I mean, even I learned this, uh, you know, hanging out with guys who have, you know, uh, kicked doors in for a living. Um, I, I, you know, I, I was amazed to find out 
trigger, you know, the, the muzzle and trigger discipline and the use of a safety. I never thought of it, but I've talked to guys who have been in firefight. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. They, yeah, they, well, I mean, I was talking to a friend of mine and he's like, Oh dude, when you're like in close proximity, you know, when you're moving around each other and all that, man, that this that thing is going all the time. It just becomes instinctive. Oh, I got to move. I got to move. It's it's on and off. I never thought about it till we got talking about it. I'm like, whoa, that's but that just proves that people say, oh, well, that's fine motor skill. Well, you just made it gross because you're doing it all the time. Yeah. Yeah. Because you have to. You got no choice. You need to do it. You know? Yeah, Absolutely. So, okay, going into more of like the custom knives. So we're away from folding, fix, all that. Um, actually, can you tell us how you came up with the idea for your first design at Double Star? Well, first of all, uh, I was designing before I went to Double Star. That's right. So they took me, they took me on, board at, on board as a designer. Cool. Okay. So um, I had a number of designs that they that they procured via royalty from me. So the first three blades that they commissioned that they started carrying was the Motac, the Dracon, and the Fang. The Motac was designed by Ray Dianaldo. Um, and then I facilitated the construction of it because at the time I was building customs of it. The Dracon was my one of my designs. And then so was the Fang. So I was already designing. As a matter of fact, Jesse Starnes, VP of Double Star, was actually my first client. Oh, neat. He actually possesses and owns the first Palcone that I ever made. That's really cool. So he actually, huh? You didn't keep it for yourself? Trust me, I wasn't in a position to keep it. You know, I actually own, I personally own very few knives. Yeah, it's kind of so what I do now is I buy knives mm -hmm. from my contemporaries or they'll give them to me. Yeah. And then I give those to my son yep. because or my kids. Yep. And that'll be the amount of my collection. Why? Because those are the people that influenced me or they're in my circle. Yeah. yeah. So he has those blades. Those are my and I told him, I said, when I go take these and spread it because my kids know all these people. They were oh, raised around them. They grew up in Yeah, yeah. Yeah, they grew up around them. So, you know, like, you know, Darren Saroy and Chris Williams and John Hutchison and Ryan Johnson from RMJ and whoever. Yeah. You know, these are Kim Breed. Um, these are all people that my kids know and, and they're my contemporaries. So that those are like, uh, uh, like for me, like one of the most sought after things that I even have in the way of knives. Um, uh, Jesse Starnes. So one of my favorite makers is a guy by the name of Elmer Rausch. Um, he's the blacksmith's blacksmith. Okay. He is the blacksmith's blacksmith. He actually builds hammers for blacksmiths. I mean, he's the man. And I've always wanted a tomahawk. I want, I've always wanted a period axe from him. And they, uh, Jesse got me one two years ago from Elmer. You and, um, huh? You cry? Uh, no, no. <laughs> No, I didn't cry, but I was definitely touched. It was, it was awesome. And it's something that's just like one of the things that I hold dear that, you know, when it comes time for my, you know, for me to move on to the next life, uh, you know, my kids, I, you know, I tell them this is, this is a, no, but I tell them this is a big deal. This, and they know Elmer, you know, Elmer's up there and up there in years now. 
you know, and so they're like, I told them, you know, this is uh, this is Mr. R- Mr. Roush's blah, 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 blah. And they're like, oh, my God, you know, and they the, again, it's, it's because it was part of their lives. They, yeah. they know these people. So for, you know, when that day comes, some of those cats are probably going to be sitting out in the audience, you know, mm-hmm. and um, it means something because we've all broke bread together. We spent time together. I learned from them, yeah. you know, and and um, so for. For custom knives. Designing. That is probably one of the things that I enjoy the most about knife making is yeah. designing. Yeah. I think that's true of a lot of artists and a lot of people who, who own businesses. Like they don't want to do the businessy stuff, maybe not even produce them, but like design it, come up with that idea, test it out. It's really yeah. it's fascinating. So, okay, going back, you were 11, 12, you were playing around with things that you shouldn't have, but you're making knives. Um, yeah, I was, yeah, I was getting in trouble in trouble did you ever actually like how did you actually learn properly or did you just self-teach yourself how to oh make wow like, that's a good that? question yeah. so i had the fundamental skills but in 2000 okay so uh, i gotta do some math now so i've been making for 12 years professionally 36 oh yeah i was about 35 36 39? yeah i was about 35 36 and the bottom fell out. At the time, I was training Ryan Johnson privately from RMJ Tactical. I was teaching him stick fighting um, privately. Um, and one of the trainings, I had come in from work and it was really tough. Things were really tight. Uh, he asked me what was wrong. And I told him. And he goes, well, and, and again, the knife industry back in those days, it wasn't like what it is now. It was kind of lucrative. And he goes, well, I think, you know, he told me, he said, well, can you do this? Can you do this? Can you do CAD? Can you, you know, can you, you know, can you work in a shop, whatever? And I go, yeah, 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 I can do all that. And he goes, well, he goes, I think you got what it takes. So we started playing around. So what we would do is we'd collaborate at night. He would send me sketches and I'd send him sketches. And, and uh, the, the very first project was the Halcone was the, was, I wanted to make a karambit. I wanted to be known for making karambits because karambits, one of my favorite things to make. And, uh, Ryan, it basically my, my tutelage in the way of knife making is to be based to, so like initially Ryan Johnson of RMJ tactical, John Hutchinson, who amongst the, the, in the Southeast, he's a very well-known custom maker out of Chattanooga and, uh, John Graham from, um, Cleveland, Tennessee. John Graham is a, John Graham is a, uh, in my opinion, probably one of the finest folder makers and grinders on the planet. Um, John, anything that I know of, of intricate knife grinding, I learned from John, John, John Graham, you guys heard it here, John Graham knives, RMJ tactical and John Hutchison. Then, so I started making knives and I was making knives for about three, three years. And I planned the, uh, I'd learned through Ryan about the guys at Spartan Blades out in uh, Fayetteville, North Carolina, Spartan Blades and Chris Williams from Wilmont Grinders and all these guys are basically, I call it my North Carolina family uh, because they took me in. These are all retired military guys. Most of them are tier one level operators, uh, but they're knife guys first um, and they're great people first. And uh, so I, I, my very first trip out to North Carolina. I spent a weekend. Darren Saroy from TCT Knives. Um, he opened his doors to a guy he didn't even know. 
uh, let me stay with him. And I spent uh, three days working with him and Chris Williams from Wilmot Grinders. Chris Williams is a, is a master knife smith. As a matter of fact, uh, Jack Stottlemyre from Rustic Knives was on Forge and Fire for the military edition. I don't know if you saw it. He represented the Army. That's cool, though. Forge and Fire. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So Jack was on there. Well, well, Chris taught Jack everything he knows. Well, not, I'm not gonna say everything, but Chris was one of the people who got Jack started. Um, so I went there and uh, I I spent three days with those guys. And for, first thing was uh, Chris Williams. Uh, I, I think I was on my last day there, and uh, we sat down and we went and grabbed some lunch at a place close by to him. And we're sitting there at dinner and he looks at me and Chris is a, uh, Chris is a, he, he doesn't look it, but Chris is a surf bum at heart. He is, he's a surf bum at heart. He was in an engineering group and um, in the special forces, uh, but he's a perfectionist and he is uh, extremely motivated. We sit down at lunch and he, and we're eating and he goes, Rob, can you please be, can, can, can I just tell you something? And I'm like, oh, my God. Well, first of all, if Chris tells you he's going to tell you something, he's not going to hold anything back. Right. Right. So I'm like, and I had taken some blades up there to learn how to do some stuff. Yeah. And uh, he goes, bro, dude, you need to quit sandbagging. You need to quit sandbagging. You need to make a run at this. Oh, yeah. And I just sat there and to have this guy tell me that. And I was like, whoa. You know, it, it hit me. It hit me. Maybe it, it made me feel like I could do it. Yeah. You know. And so then that evening I stayed with Saroy. And uh, I'm at his house hanging out with him and we're making. And uh, Darren is a retired sergeant major um, ranger. And uh, he basically tells me the same thing. Dude, you could put your mind to whatever you want to do and never stop learning. Mm-hmm. Same thing. And I got to tell you, when I came back. I remember driving home, I drive back to chat. Yeah. And as you probably already well know, there's no short way to North Carolina from Tennessee. <laughs> no, <laughs> <laughs> there's no short way. No. Yeah, there's no short way. So I'm driving back and my head is in the clouds. And, and you're I'm in just, the mountains. Yeah, yeah. And my head is in the clouds. And I'm in the mountains. I'm just going over this whole weekend. Yep. And I'll be honest with you, when I came back from that, I was changed. Uh, I had made the decision that from that point on, that I don't care what it took or how long it takes that there's going to come a point in time where I am going to be the 800 pound gorilla in the room in this industry. I don't care what it takes. Oh yeah. Um, but again, I would, I'm, I'm the sum of my teachers, mm-hmm. you know, I'm the sum of that. And if not for those five guys, I, I probably wouldn't be here. Yeah, I wouldn't be here because they, they didn't, they never kept anything from me. And they were always extremely brutal. Um, And that's another thing about a lot of these. And again, a lot of these self-taught guys, that's great. That's awesome. That's awesome. But there's one thing that I have. I'm in a circle of about 160 guys. There's a group of us, 160 knife makers. We span the world where we're in the same group. Yeah. And I got to tell you, the thing about these cats is, is that they, we are extremely honest with each other and we won't. Well, I guess what I'm trying to say is a lot of these new makers out there, they're out there on their own and you're an island. Don't be an island. And I'm going to tell you why, because 
contemporaries will not allow you to get away with anything. If you push crap out there, or if you're pushing things out that are questionable, these dudes will not allow you. If you have good contemporaries, they will not let you get away with it. Yeah. Yeah. You know, they will hold you to task period full stop. You push something out there that just doesn't look right. They will, they'll reel you in, man. They'll reel you in and they'll be like, uh, dude, you need to take that back to the bench, brother. That's, that's complete and utter crap. You know? Yeah. Yes. It's necessary. Mm-hmm. And a lot of, and again, these guys that are, you know, they're doing it on their own and they're doing, that's great. That's all well and good. But the problem is, is with the artisanship, I understand the part of it. That's all creative. I get it. Yeah. But you need somebody to keep you pinned to the ground in the sense that don't let you get too full of yourself and don't let you get away with anything because with the right guys that are around you, that thought process will always, you know, like when I would release blades on Facebook to be sold, I would always grab a hold of that blade for the prior week that I knew I was going to release it and I would critique the crap out of it. And you're, you're like critique. Yeah. And it could, because I knew that when I released it, yeah. they're going to look at it. They're going to look at it. They're going to look at it. And if they see something that doesn't look right. Yeah. These guys were not afraid to just call me up and be like, bro, um, your plunge, <laughs> your plunge lines look like complete crap. You know, you need to, you need to take that back to the bench, bro. Take that off. Don't you dare try and sell that. Wow. You know? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that they keep you, they keep you honest. Yeah. They keep you honest. And I've been blessed because a lot of the guys, you know, John Graham, Ryan, John, uh, I learned how to heat treat from John Hutchison. He's getting older now. He's up there in years. His health is really bad. Um, but I learned everything I know. I learned how to open flame heat treat from him. Um, you know, and these guys, I look back at them now and I wouldn't be here without them. Yeah, I wouldn't, That's wouldn't good. be here without them. Now, across the board, I think, um, in, in, I guess maybe not even niche markets, but you're some of the people you surround yourself with, you're some of the mentorship. And I mean, yeah, you want to go out alone, right. To say like, yeah, I did it. I really think that the, the true artists and the creators and all that, they have a team, like they didn't get there on their own. Right. It's okay to ask for help. And I don't know. I think that's where I'm at too, is I would not be here without all of the help and generous people, <laughs> you know? You yeah. Got- and when, yeah. And when you have an opportunity to tell the world about them, do it. So anybody who's listening to this podcast, TCT Knives, Wilmont Grinders, Graham Knives, RMJ Tactical, um, old John Hutchison, he doesn't make much anymore. He's kind of on his way out. Uh, Elmer Roush, any of those guys, man, they just, I wouldn't be here without them. Would not be here without them. Love it. Actually, Rob, that's a perfect segment. So this is a two-part episode for those listening. <laughs> so tune in um, on Thursday for part two of this. Um, and we'll keep going on this subject. Thanks for listening to the Reticle Up podcast. Be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and on YouTube. Follow along on social media at Reticle Up or 3 Gun Kenzie.